All right. Whoa. That's, well, we'll come down a little bit on the mic there. Um, we're starting a series this morning. We're going to spend seven weeks in the book of Ephesians, which has six chapters. Uh, that's going to be a little bit of an adventure for me because I, when I read Ephesians, feel like there's about 22 sermons worth of material in the book of Ephesians that Paul's written. Um, so I'm going for us to ever get to lunch in the next two months ever. Uh, we're going to have to move quicker through some topics than, than I want to. Uh, but I want you to be able to be engaging with the Scripture more than just on Sunday mornings. And so one of the things that the church has done for this series is we've purchased a number of these uh, Scripture journals. They have the book of Ephesians in them. And one of the things you'll notice if you pick one up uh, is that they have uh, the book of Ephesians on the left side. And on the right side, it is left open for your notes uh, and so some of them have illustrations, some do not. Uh, they are unfortunately only available in English, we've, we've looked, but that is uh, something that we've purchased. And, and the way, if, you're kind of, if you've got one of those, and you're thinking, okay, now I've got this, and I know that we're going through Ephesians, how can I use this? Uh, there's not an instruction manual. We're not going to give you very specific instructions on how to interact with the text, but I hope that you will, in fact, interact with the text. Um, if you want some ways to think about it, one way you can do it uh, is as you're going through it, you can write down in, in the margins your thoughts, your questions, your prayers. You can draw images that come to mind as you're thinking about what's going on in, in Ephesians. Um, you can uh, go through and underline the passages that are significant to you, circle the things that matter, have a highlighter in one hand and a pen in the other. You can use multicolored pens with each color coded to mean a different thing to you as you're doing it. it do it however you want, but please use these to interact with the Word of God. You can read one chapter a week where, where this week you're going, okay, we're doing Ephesians 1. So over the next week, I'll read Ephesians 1, uh, maybe once on your own, once with your spouse or with a friend, uh, and maybe once with your whole family. You can do it on a Zoom call or you can do it in person, however you want. The opportunities for engaging with the Word of God in community are, are maybe greater or different than they were in the past. You may decide that you want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 1 every day this week. Just for one week, you're just going to hit Ephesians 1 every single day. And I'll tell you, if you read Ephesians 1 every single day for a month, you'll find something you didn't think of or notice or that didn't grab you before. It's that kind of a chapter. Uh, or you may decide uh, Ephesians has six chapters. If you want to, for the next seven weeks... Every day of, of the week, you can read a different chapter. So on Monday, you can every week read Ephesians 1, on Tuesday, Ephesians 2, uh, and then every week, start over and go through it again so that every week you're getting the book of Ephesians written on your mind and your heart so that God can begin shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ and His people. Uh, do it however you want, but please, if you want one of these, we, we ordered some more this week. They were very popular. Many of them went out last week, so we've got more. Uh, they're available over at the Family Resource Center in the South Fourier. Uh, be sure and grab one of those on your way out today. You know, regarding the city of Ephesus that Paul um, that the letter is addressed to, the book of Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, the city of Ephesus is a major harbor and important city in the world that Paul was doing his ministry in. 
It was a, a hub for its community and its region, and Paul uh, knew the city well. Today, the city that was Ephesus in the Bible is now in modern-day Turkey, uh, and you can even go and see the ruins of Ephesus there uh, today. Uh, Ephesus also was well-known for its temple to the goddess Artemis. The goddess Artemis had a temple there. It was an incredible and huge temple. It's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world today. Uh, and not only was the temple significant, but it was a major part of the economy of, of, of Ephesus. Uh, and so there was a lot of witchcraft and sorcery and spirituality and sacrifices and silversmiths. Uh, and in fact, when you read the book of Acts and you see Paul's interaction with the city of Ephesus when he's doing mission work there, he's engaging with uh, the, the economy of worship to Artemis. Not only do they threaten uh, does Paul's mission threaten their religion, but he threatens their jobs because this temple to Artemis is big business in Ephesus. Uh, but when it comes to Paul in Ephesus, we read in Acts about several occasions that he's there. Uh, Paul goes to Ephesus once in his second missionary journey, and he's there for a short stint. We know it's short because at the end of it they say, you just got here, why are you leaving? Please stay longer. And he says, I can't at this time, but I hope to come back. And so we read in Acts 19 and 20 that Paul was able in his third missionary journey to come back to Ephesus. Not only did he come back, uh, he stays in Ephesus for a little over three years. It's one of the long, longest stops in all of Paul's missionary journeys. In fact, it appears that Paul changes his missionary model and methodology when he gets to this second stop in Ephesus. Now what Paul decides when he gets to Ephesus is, if I can locate myself in this place for several years, I can raise up a, a hub of missionaries who can go into this region around Ephesus. And, and a lot of scholars believe that what Paul does in these three years is he turns Ephesus into the hub of his missionary network. And that he begins networking to the, all of these other cities and regions and nearby areas that are connected to Ephesus through commerce and trade, and, and that he turns it into the center of his missionary effort. And he's there for three years. He knows these people intimately. He's incredibly close to them. And you see that in Acts chapter 20 when he's headed towards Jerusalem and he and everyone else is talking about how if he goes to Jerusalem, he is certainly going to get killed when he gets there. His message is not popular among the Jewish leaders, the Gentiles can become part of the people of God. And so Paul is going to Jerusalem expecting to die, and everyone who sees him says, where are you going? And he says, Jerusalem. And they say, don't you know if you go there, you will die? And Paul, when he's traveling, skips the city of Ephesus in his ship journey to get to Jerusalem. And the text indicates that he knows that if he goes to Ephesus, he's not going to be able to leave. He'll stay. And so the elders at the church in Ephesus know that this is happening. And so they meet him at the next port and they, they meet him there and they beg him to not go. And they cry and they weep and they pray for him and pray for him. And it's this moment where Paul is with these elders of the church and you can tell they just love each other. They're very, very close to one another. All of these important connections that Paul has to the church in Ephesus, and we know that he's writing the letter that we know as Ephesians from uh, prison in Rome. 
And he writes four letters that we have in our New Testament while he's there in prison. Uh, He writes the books of Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. Colossians and Ephesians are very similar to one another, very similar. Um, He he shares a lot of content between these two letters that he's writing from prison uh, in Rome. And so we know that he writes the letters from there, or at least we have a high level of uh, confidence that that is where they were written from. But what's interesting is that this letter was probably not written to the Ephesians. Um, This letter uh, originally was probably not addressed to the church in Ephesus. I say that because uh, one of the things that is incredible about studying the New Testament is we have more ancient manuscripts of New Testament books and letters and documents than any other uh, historical work of fiction or nonfiction uh, of any kind. The Bible is one of the most uh, published early documents in antiquity, which means we can learn a lot about uh, how to authenticate it. And one of the things that's interesting is when you're taking an ancient document that has lots of copies like this, they couldn't Xerox them. They're copied by hand by scribes, and occasionally a scribe would make a small change. If you've ever played the game Telephone where one person tells a a secret to one person who tells it to another who tells it to another, and by the end it's very different. One of the incredible things about the Bible is how much uh, over time it maintains its, its, its accuracy in the documents. We don't have any of the original documents that the apostles or New Testament authors wrote, but we have some that are earlier than others. And the earlier a document is, the older it is, the more uh, authentic, the more accurate it tends to be. Three of our oldest manuscripts that we have from the book of Ephesians do not contain the the two-word phrase in Ephesus that is in Ephesians 1 verse 1. It's not there. So it says to the holy ones, but it does not say to the holy ones in Ephesus. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that Paul originally is probably not writing to the church in Ephesus when he writes this document from prison in Rome. But did he send a copy of it to Ephesus? It certainly is possible. Some people think that the book that that we have today that is called Ephesians may have been uh, the letter that uh, was written originally to the Laodiceans. Uh, Paul in Colossians, oh, it's in Colossians 4.16. Paul writes, uh, and he says uh, to the church in Colossae, he says, listen, when you get the letter from the Laodiceans, be sure you take it and share it with them and they can share it with you. And, and you get this idea that Paul from time to time is writing letters that can be passed from church to church. Uh, Ephesians is probably one of those letters. And if you look at the churches that are very specifically written to a, a congregation in particular, so the letter to Corinth says, I know there is one among you one who is doing evil things that not even pagans would approve of, and, and things with his, his father's wife, and he ought not to be doing that. Paul's not just sending that to everybody. That letter's going to Corinth. When, when Paul writes to the, the Philippian church, and he says, Syntyche and Eutyche, I know that you have these problems and challenges with genealogies and whose is better, and, and you've got to quit arguing about that. He's not sending that to everyone. He's sending that to a church that has two women that are in it named Eutyche and Syntyche. 
He's got to talk to them about the conflict that they're having. But in Ephesians, we don't get any of those specific instructions or circumstances that would come up if he was addressing a church that he knew and loved as well as the church in Ephesus. And as he ends many of his letters, like the one to the the church in Rome, and he says, I send my greetings to, and then Paul has this whole list of everyone that he knows, loves, and respects that are in there. People um, often are included in those lists. If he was writing to Ephesus, it certainly would have included that list of people that he wanted to send greetings to after being with them for three years. And it doesn't. So what does that tell us about the book of Ephesians? We don't know definitively. What I think it means is that the letter that we know as Ephesians was written to be passed from church to church to church. That he wanted to make a concise and clear overview of how he understands the gospel. And he knew that it was valuable for lots of congregations. And he's in prison and he sends it to probably Laodicea and Colossae and Ephesus. And then he tells them, after you've read this, pass this on to the next church. So was this letter likely to Ephesus? Probably. And in fact, that might be why some of our manuscripts do contain the phrase uh, to the holy ones in Ephesus, is it may have also been written to the holy ones in Laodicea and the holy ones in Colossae and the holy ones in all of the congregations where Paul had any influence at all. And so he wrote it in such a way that it would be valuable to all Christians in all circumstances. A circular letter, after you've read this, hand this off to the church that needs it next. So that gives us a little bit of an introduction. As we're talking about it, we will, I will be saying uh, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, because I think the Ephesians would have been one of the churches that got a letter like this. It would have been one of the churches who Paul would have probably sent it to, knowing that as a mission hub, they could send it out to all of the little congregations around them who need to know what Paul understands about the gospel and what it means to be about the people of God. But one of the things that makes this letter for me very special for us to study in the world today is that it doesn't include the kind of very specific details of a letter to a certain congregation. It is intended to be for all Christians in all circumstances, and it makes it especially meaningful for us today. And so as we get into the text, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians and follow along. Ephesians chapter 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before I read verses 3 through 14, I want to tell you that, that in the original Greek, this next section verse 3 through 14, uh, is considered to likely be one of the longest, if not the longest, run-on sentences in all of the New Testament. Um, In English, we break it up with several pieces of punctuation because English cannot tolerate a sentence that is this long because we don't know where to breathe or how to process it, and we will get lost in it. But for Paul in Greek, he starts writing this sentence, and if if you're reading it in the Greek, what you get is this idea that he can't stop what he's writing in these verses, that it is just pouring out of him at such an incredible pace and with incredible significance that it is just... It is just dripping out of him and onto the page. And so I'm going to take a couple breaths as we go through this. 
But as you listen to this, just know that what Paul is pouring out here is just pouring out of him. And so he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us and the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when he, the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's an exhausting way to hear and to read what Paul is doing here. But you have to know that what Paul is doing is he's not trying to masterfully craft these sentences. He does. And the richness of this, you could literally spend a year preaching through those verses. You really could. We won't. But you could. But Paul just pours it out like an avalanche of God's love. And it's an overwhelming testimony to how much that God loves us and he accomplishes his purposes of loving us through Christ, through Christ, through Christ, through Christ. And he's just pouring it out. And over and over again, he's making it clear that what God has done, God has done in Christ. And so as you look at it, starting in verse 3, here's the things that God has done in this section that we just read. He has blessed us in the King. He chose us in Him. He predestined us for adoption through Him. He poured grace on us in Him. He gave us redemption in Him. He set out His plan in Him. He intends to sum everything up in Him. We have obtained our inheritance in Him. We set our hope in Him. We have been sealed in Him with the Spirit. In Him, in Him, in Him, in the King, in the Messiah, in Christ. Paul wants us to know that God has accomplished His purposes. And that God accomplished all of those good purposes through Jesus Christ. And He did it through Jesus Christ for us. 
There's a phrase in the middle of this passage where he talks about how we've been adopted into sonships, that we have become the adopted children of God himself, and and God achieved that through his own son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to adoption in a little bit, but I want us to get through the rest of this chapter, and so we're going to keep going in verse 15, but we will come back to adoption because that it's so important before we get to the rest of the letter of Ephesians that we understand who we are and whose we are. And we belong to God because of Jesus and what he did. And we belong to God not as servants and not as people who are obedient, not as followers, but as adopted children. So now Paul gives a prayer, and his letters always include a prayer at the beginning. And the prayer often tells us what is most important for Paul as he's beginning to write his his letter. And so Paul writes, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul's prayer for those who are in Christ includes these four things. God, I pray that you give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know God. Sometimes we get this one backwards. Sometimes we have this desire that we might know God so that we can have wisdom and revelation so that we might have the Spirit. But for Paul, it's the other way around. The goal is that you have the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know God. And this doesn't mean knowledge. This isn't know about. This isn't have knowledge about. This is to know God like you know a best friend, like you know your spouse, like you know your family. It's relational. Paul's prayer for the holy ones in Christ is that they might have a spirit that gives them wisdom and revelation so that they can have an incredible relationship with God. God the Father. He wants them to know the hope to which they are called. They are not to be people filled with despair. They are not called, we are not called, to be people that are disheartened, but we are people who are called to hope. We are to know that we are God's inheritance. An inheritance that is God's legacy in the world. 
Everyone leaves something when they leave this world. They leave an inheritance to people, to a group, to someone. It is their legacy that outlives them. For God, His legacy is us who believe in Him, is we who are His followers. We are God's inheritance. And, and Paul prays that those who are in Christ would know God's power for those who believe. To know his power. If there's ever a time that as a Christian you feel powerless, you've missed it. If there's ever a time as a Christian that you feel like you're weak, you've missed it. Because what Paul is writing and he's praying is, I'm praying that these people will know, these people will know that they have a power from God and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. That's what he prays for us. All of this, all of this is done so that we might, as he talks about earlier in, in his super long run on sentence, that we might have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, the mark of the, the promise that we are God's people, is that the Spirit dwells in us and works through us, and all of that so that we can be the adopted children of God. I want to ask, adoption is an incredible thing. How many, how, many are part of, how many families that are here have been blessed by adoption? Any families that have been blessed by adoption? A number here. Um, I, I'm excited to ask that question at the 10 o'clock service because it's like an adoption party at 10 o'clock. Foster care, adoption, international, domestic. Uh, we're going to just let the whole room stand up and we're just going to celebrate. Uh, adoption is an incredible thing, but it always comes at a cost. There's always a cost with adoption. There's financial cost for the family that's adopting. There's the cost of, of, of changing dreams that families might have had. There's a, a cost uh, for the one who chooses to place a child for adoption. There is always cost with adoption, but the costs are always, always worth it. And that's what makes adoption stories so powerful, is that while they include sacrifice, the sacrifice is tiny compared to the incredible blessing and gift that comes from adoption. And when we talk about what it means to be adopted as God's children, we need to know that that adoption came at a cost. This year at our sweetheart banquet on Zoom, uh, we had a, a performer named John Trost, and he shared a, shared a story with us at the Sweetheart Banquet uh, about his family and adoption. And I've got a video of him telling the story and, and, and playing a song that he wrote. And, and it's an incredible parable that reminds us about the cost of adoption. And, and it gives us a window into how God, I believe, feels about the price he paid so that we might be adopted and, and loved as his children marked by the Spirit. So we're going to play this, this video real quick. It's his explanation and uh, a song that he wrote about his sister being adopted. And, and then I'm, I'm going to close the sermon after you see this story. Um, I don't think, I don't know if I mentioned, but I have uh, six siblings, um, seven kids in my family, which was just really hard for me growing up, you know. Mm -hmm. No, um, not really. <laughs> um, I am the third one, also known as the best. <laughs> um, 
not also true. Um, but no, I, uh, I have, so yeah, four brothers, two sisters. Um, my sisters and two of my four brothers were adopted. Um, my sisters and one older brother are adopted from Bangladesh, um, which is a long ways away from here. Um, and my folks were in the process of adopting my sister, uh, one of my sisters, and um, the country closed down and decided to stop allowing adoptions, which can happen from time to time. And uh, so the, the adoption was put on hold indefinitely. Um, so they were um, in the, you know, not sure if my sister was ever going to come. So in the meantime, um, the agency asked if my folks would adopt a boy, a domestic adoption from Michigan, which is where we were living. So after they agreed to that, uh, the country opened back up and they decided to start allowing adoptions again. So my parents were adopting two and they had only planned on um, one and, and budgeted for one, which can be very expensive. Um, so they were figuring out how they were going to pay for the adoption um, of my sister. And one of the ways they came up with to raise money was that they would sell my mom's uh, diamond wedding ring, get money from that um, to help pay for the adoption, which was a story I grew up knowing and didn't really think much about as a kid, you know, just kind of was aware it happened. But um, years later, you know, as I kind of stepped outside of the story to think about it, I thought, man, that really was, you know, kind of a cool um, and very meaningful symbolic thing that my folks did. Um, and um, so at that point, I wrote this song uh, called Wedding Ring, which um, my folks taught me a lot of things, verbally, of course, too, but just seeing an example lived out like that, I think, taught me in a way that might be hard to um, put into words. So I'm very grateful to my folks for that. So <clears throat> uh, this is a song called Wedding Ring. My mother had a lot of love. She and my father had more than enough. Heard about a little girl She was an orphan in another world Love makes money seem so poor There wasn't any way they could afford To give that girl a single thing And so my mother sold her wedding ring you sparkle more than any diamond I wouldn't trade you for the world What are your dreams now? Go and find them My daughter, my daughter My wedding ring It's been years since she arrived And she's brought so much joy to all our lives My little sister all grown up She is a beacon to our parents' love You sparkle more than any diamond I wouldn't trade you for the world what are your dreams now? Go and find them. My daughter, my daughter, my wedding. 
Mother got another ring. It doesn't mean that much of anything. The love that it's a symbol for is seen much better in that little girl. You sparkle more than any diamond. I wouldn't trade you for the world. What are your dreams now? Go and find them. My daughter, my daughter, my wedding ring. You sparkle beginning of the sweetheart banquet John came up and he's got his, his guitar and his keyboard right there and I said oh John we're Church of Christ you're not planning on using your instruments tonight are you he says I don't know you and your sense of humor I go that was a joke he goes oh good um, the song is so moving to me that his mother sold one of her most prized possessions because it was not worth the daughter that she needed to bring home. She knew that the daughter that lived in Bangladesh, that she could not find the money to get, that if she could sell anything of value to her, that there was nothing that was off limits if it meant that that daughter could come home for her. And the story to me is so powerful when I think about God understanding that his children on earth were separated from him and that there was one thing that he had that he could trade in, the cost that he could pay, the price that must be paid so that he could adopt his sons and his daughters. And it was that he had to send Jesus, his son, to live here, to die on the cross, to be resurrected, Adoption for me has given me a small window into God's heart because I know the price of adopting a child, not just the cost, but the value of a child that is adopted. Harper is our incredible, beautiful adopted daughter and a gift to us all the time. And we tell her so often we are so glad that God chose us to be her family. And as we begin the book of Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear that before you get into the topics that are to come, and the topics that are going to come are, are racism and diversity and unity and gender and, and morality and, and spiritual warfare. And he says, you can't begin to talk about these things until you understand this, that God loves you so much that he did all these things for you through Jesus so that you could be his daughter and his son. 
And it's when you understand that relationship and that love that you can begin to have all the other tough talks that are coming. But if you don't understand God's incredible love for his adopted children and that you're one of them, then you can't even talk about that other stuff because it's just window dressing if you don't know that you're God's child. So Paul starts the letter to the Ephesus church and those others who received his letter by telling them, don't you know that if you're in Christ, you're God's child? Today can be for you your adoption day. The day that you were baptized into Jesus Christ was your adoption day, your gotcha day, that you became a child of God. If today is the day that you need to receive that adoption from God, He offers it if you will only receive it to become His daughter or His son. If you need to respond to that invitation to be part of the family of God so that you can do all the other stuff that this letter is going to call us to do, you have to start by becoming a child of the Father, a child of God. If you need to respond to that this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing together.